All right. Uh, so we've got chapter 16 this week, which is on good works. Um, and again, kind of is my custom, just a quick review in case you've missed a few weeks. Um, or even if you haven't, it's good to be reminded of these things. That the opening two chapters of the confessions, or not confessions, the confession, uh, deal with kind of foundational type things. So how do we know God? Chapter one's on the Holy Scripture. Um, what is this God like? Chapter two is on the doctrine of God and the Holy Trinity. So those two chapters taken together, you can think of them as kind of a foundation for what's to come. Uh, the next chapters, three, four, and five, um, talk about the decrees of God. That is, how God behaves. So we've got foundations, then the decrees of God, and then the next kind of chunk or theme is um, sin and the Savior. And chapters 6, 7, and 8 deal with, uh, respectively, the fall of man and sin and the punishment thereof, God's covenant with man, and Christ the mediator. So that little section there is uh, sin and the Savior. So putting the three together, we've got foundations, the decrees of God, and then sin and the Savior. And then the next section is what we've been in for some time now, which is where we still are, is chapters 9 through 18. And the common thread that runs throughout these uh, nine chapters, nine or so, is that of salvation. So we have topics like free will, effectual calling, justification, sanctification, uh, repentance. And then today we come to good works. The next two chapters will be perseverance and then assurance of salvation. So that you know, pretty lengthy chunk there, right in the middle of the confession, deals with salvation. Um, and so today we find ourselves in chapter 16 of good works. Um, so why don't we read the first paragraph, and then we will um, talk about it. And is, uh, as is always the case, please feel free to interrupt or if you have a question or something like that at any point, okay? So let's look at chapter 16, paragraph 1 together. Um, you should, did everybody, I'm assuming, find a handout? You should have the handout that Robert brought, okay. Um, so let's look at paragraph 1. Good works are only those works identified as good by God and commanded by him in his holy word. They do not include other works, no matter how well-intentioned in design or zealously promoted by men. Okay, so the first paragraph in chapter 16 um, tells us what good works are. The next paragraph, which obviously I haven't read yet, but the next paragraph will tell us why they're important. So paragraph one, what they are. Paragraph two, why they're important. Okay, so let's talk about what they are. You guys will notice the language that they are those things identified as good by God and commanded by him in his holy word. Um, so for example here, we could look to one of the passages cited. Do you see the first cited passage is Micah 6, 8? Um, <clears throat> Micah 6, 8 is uh, the following. He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, 
to love kindness and to walk humbly with God. Okay, so that's Micah 6, 8. And there's plenty of other texts that we could read, but that's a pretty good summary of what qualifies as a good work. Okay, uh, namely that you uh, do justice, you love, uh, and to love kindness, to walk humbly before God. So, in, unless it's lost on us, I, I guess a big principle that we should not miss here is that we are told by God what constitutes good. We, are, we have to be told by God what constitutes good. So remember, way back to chapter 1 uh, and 2, we are utterly reliant on God to even reveal himself to us, or else we could not come to any knowledge of him. And in a similar fashion, we are reliant on him to reveal to us what is good, or else we could not come to a knowledge of it, at least not a complete knowledge of it, okay? Um, and that's because, by nature, our minds cannot discern them uh, alone, at least not without fault. So think of the famous text in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Um, that we need to be renewed in our minds, okay? So there's something, there's something wrong in our minds that we, we are reliant on God to reveal to us what's good, so if we want to know what, good, what is good and what's acceptable and perfect, we must be transformed by the renewal of our minds. So I'm basically quoting Romans 12 there, okay? Um, <clears throat> and the other part of paragraph one is that good works, if you caught this toward the end, do not include other works devised by men, no matter how zealously they are pursued. So the assembly points to one particular area in their proof text, which is interesting. So if you look, yeah, okay, so our printouts do have it here. So do you guys see the second sentence in paragraph one? And then we've got footnote number two under paragraph one. So Matthew 15, 9, Isaiah 29, 13, 1 Peter 1. These are all texts when put together have to do with worship, actually. Um, Isaiah 29, 13. Let me just open that up, or if anybody's got it handy. You got it? Okay, Isaiah 29, 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Okay. Now, this text, especially if you look at the broader context, is describing the act of worship. Um, I mean, notice even what Pastor Brooks just read, we have draw near with the mouth, we have honor me with their lips, and then it says their fear. That is, um, fear, by the way, is the posture that we're commanded to adopt before God. So he says their fear is a commandment taught by men, which is what Isaiah says. Okay, so we have the outward appearance of worship. Um, I mean, quite literally in this passage, it's we're paying lip service to God. So again, outward appearance of worship, but what God says when looking on their hearts, their fear is a commandment taught by man. Okay, and again, I just want to stress, when you hear fear there, you need to be thinking of the whole warp and woof of how Scripture uses 
that concept of fear before God. So right fear is synonymous with proper posture before God. And the individuals being described by Isaiah describe that fear being adopted, uh, or you could say that bent knee is not at the, the feet of God, but rather man. And that's the problem. So it's this very passage in Isaiah. So Isaiah 29, 13. Our Lord quotes in Matthew 15, 9, in his condemnation of worship contrived by man. That is, it's empty, hopeless, and vain. Do you have that, Brooks? Matthew 15, 9. Heard you turning pages over there. So Matthew 15, 9, again, this is our Lord talking, and he's criticizing the worship that he sees around him, and he says the following. Yeah, okay, sure. The people honest me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and then this is In vain do they worship, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Okay, so obviously you guys can tell it's a verbatim quote from Isaiah, and the Lord is applying it to what he sees around him. So let me back up a little bit. We're talking about the second sentence here in chapter 16. They do not include other works, no matter how well-intentioned in design or zealously promoted by men. So the big idea here is good works. What, what are they? And the assembly says, it's not the works of man, no matter how, like, how hard we think that we're trying to do good works. And their evidence that they point to in the scripture all have to do with worship. However, this principle is applicable in other areas of life as well. Um, hopefully this is intuitive to us. Um, for example, the worst crimes in human history have been committed because men zealously believe what they were doing was the right thing to do. In our own day, consider the rhetoric that surrounds, for example, most, I mean, the most corrosive social pathologies in our culture have this frothing at the mouth religious fervor behind them. And the zeal behind them doesn't make them good, is what the, the principle here is. What do we call the rebellion against our bodies and natural sexuality? Oh, we call that trans rights. If a doctor is participating in it, we call it gender-affirming care. Or consider abortion. What do we call killing children in the womb? Well, this is give, uh, defended as a so-called right, and it's dressed up in the guise of women's rights. And Consider even further the worst act in human histories committed by men who were convinced that they were offering service to God. John 16, 2 says this, Indeed, the hour, this is, uh, sorry, our Lord talking, saying, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. So again, the principle here that I'm wanting to press on us is no matter how, sometimes, sometimes I'm sure we've all heard something like, well, so-and-so is an error, but, you know, they're sincere. That does not matter. It does not matter if you're sincere. If anything, it makes it worse. 
because you're sincerely evil. <laughs> and again, the, their proof text here applies to worship, but it's a principle that applies to all of life. Um, and I guess maybe here's the point that we can draw from the second sentence in paragraph one. <clears throat> everyone thinks they're on God's side. Or maybe everyone thinks God's on their side. Everyone invokes the name of God to justify their actions. But what the confession is saying here is that God and God alone is the one who gets to define what's good and evil and what constitutes a good work, not us. Um, So if we're okay with what they are and also by negation what they are not, after Mr. Murphy's question or comment, we will talk about why they are important. Probably. No, the, I have not. The, the German language uh, last three months of Taylor's life, it got made into a meme where they would add fake subtitles. And oh, okay. I've seen the meme. Is this like the in the you know underground bunker? Yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, but the, that movie, when it, when it came out, um, got huge vitriol and, and hatred in Germany uh, because people said, um, you're, you're making uh, Hitler out to be uh, a person like us. That he was missing. Oh, sure, I mean, yeah. He wasn't sympathetic to Hitler, but like he got a new secretary right before the end, and she hadn't seen anything that he was doing, and she thought he was just a boss with a dog and an ex painter and a vegetarian. Is this uh, Eva Braun or Ava? I don't know. No, how to say no, no, no. That was the long This was this young 19 year old girl who was just his last secretary that he hired before he died. Uh-huh. And, but the, the point was that the German public, like, like we do this all the time, where we say, you know, you're literally Hitler. Yeah. You know, like, 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 like you just throw out that. I often like, get that, yeah. Like, he was, he was a different, like, his, when you use that, you're saying that they're, like, of a different species yeah. than us. And the fact that he was, what, what made the German public so upset was that he was doing what he thought was right. That he could look in the mirror and say, this is necessary, this is vital, this is good, this yeah. is healthy, this will protect the German people and be the right thing for the world. Um, that Hitler did not look in the mirror and go, wah, yeah. I his mustache, I'm doing evil. Um, it, yeah. that no, and, and I think it's, it's a real important insight that nobody does that. Only cartoon bad guys say, I'm doing evil. Yeah. And, and that the worst person in the world, the Pol Pot, the Stalin, the Hitler, these people all, yeah. every one of us, to a man and woman says, I'm doing what has to be done, what is the right and good thing. And that, yeah. that can lead to six million Jews in a, in a gas chamber kind of stuff. Well, Steinbeck, uh, John Steinbeck wrote a book, one of his lesser known books. He wrote Of Mice of Men, Grapes of Wrath, East of Eden. He wrote a, a really short book called um, uh, The Moon is Down, I think, or The Moon, When the Moon is, something like that, very close. The Moon is Down. And it was during World War II. And it's set in one of the Scandinavian countries, I think Norway. And it's a small village, and the Nazis have come in, and they've taken over. Um, and it's a story about the kind of like quiet resistance that the Norwegians give to the Nazis. But he was reamed in the public because the Nazis in the book were human. And it was, the book was not well received because... The, the, the Nazis were so, um, yeah, relatable. That's exactly it. Is they were so relatable 
Um, and Steinbeck was like, I mean, they're people. They can't be, I mean, they're not like a rhinoceros or something, another species. Um, so anyways, just, it's another kind of similar point that we all, I mean, yeah, I mean, we all have a, we, we've all inherited the same nature, the same corrupt nature from our uh, covenant head, Adam, uh, lest we are, uh, you know, brought into the new covenant and have a new head and that old man is being put to death. Um, we all have the same nature that we are born with. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, too, in light of part one, especially with the proof text of, was, was Malachi one of the proof texts? Micah 6 8. Yeah. How, this is a theory, like the, the idea of social justice, that's one of the top three from the Micah right. text, has been commandeered in so, so many Christians, really well intentioned. Right. Swept up because they thought that God had already declared it, since the word justice was used, that God has. Right. But it puts us on guard that even if God's language is used, we still need to make sure God's intention is being appropriated through that. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, and I had another thought too as I was preparing my notes, but there's a very, when I was going through like, what do we call, you know, mutilation to bodies? We call that gender affirming care. What do we call murder of little ones? Well, we call that women's rights, whatever it is. There's this very Orwellian twist that happens with the language. Um, where men co-opt God's language and then backfill their own meaning into it. And the confession in paragraph one is saying, do not do that. We are not wise enough to determine what makes good and what makes evil. Rather, we are utterly reliant on God. Just to reiterate the point, we're utterly reliant on God to give us these moral categories because we are too... um, like intellectually fragile. We don't know. We're so easily tossed about by whatever winds of the age that we happen to find ourselves in. Um, So let's talk about why they're important. This is paragraph two. So I want you to look at your handout and we'll read paragraph two. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. Notice the, the qualifiers there, true and living faith. By them, believers show their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance of salvation, edify their brothers in the Lord, and become ornaments of all those who profess the gospel. Good works in believers silence the criticism of the enemies of the gospel. They also glorify God by showing that believers are the workmanship and creation of Jesus Christ because their aim is that holiness of living which leads to eternal life. So, this paragraph, as I've already said, uh, deals with the value of good works. One surefire way to avoid falling into false worship and chasing with zeal the false good works of man is obedience to God. Um, This is one of the... Uh, text they cite is James 2, verses 18 and 22. I'll read those for you. This is James 2, verses 18 and 22. This will be familiar to all of us. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed 
by his works. Uh, I want to point out the strength of the language here. Do you, did you hear what works, good works do to your faith? Complete your faith. Okay, let's be careful. But it means something. It does mean something. <laughs> I think he repents of that later in life. Yeah. Let's not tar old Luther with young Luther's brush. Um, as was the case with many things. <laughs> but um, I, I think this is a helpful, a helpful way to remember it. We talked about this back when we did um, the chapter 15 on justification. I believe I mentioned this. This is a turn of phrase that I think is helpful. Uh, no, sorry, chapter 11 of justification. That works are not a necessary cause of faith. Okay? Works are not a necessary cause of faith. But they are a necessary consequence. Works are not a necessary cause. Nor are they any cause, for that matter. Necessary otherwise. They're not a cause of faith, but they are a necessary consequence. Now, a lot of this gets confusing because when we talk about faith, people are talking about different things. Um, Generally speaking, especially in Protestantism and maybe in particular in evangelicalism, we're talking about conversion, which that's kind of this larger ball of salvation. And within that, there are several really important doctrines, justification, repentance, sanctification, that are inside that larger category of salvation. And so we need to be careful to parse them uh, carefully and put them in the right order. But again, I'll just reiterate, works are not a necessary cause of your faith, but they are a necessary consequence. Um, In the same way that, I think this is is true, this uh, metaphor, in the same way that the scent of a rose makes you understand the presence of the flower, so too are good works make you aware of the presence of your faith. They cannot create or cause faith any more than a scent creates a rose, but they do confirm the presence of faith in the same way that the scent confirms the presence of a rose or whatever flower you prefer. Therefore, in bearing much fruit, we will prove ourselves to be his disciples which is John 15, 8, one of the passages that they cite. Um, I want to move on to 3 and 4, unless there's any comments or question about why they're important. There's some Baptist denomination around here that I've never heard they of. They don't have denominations. I'm just kidding. It's, 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 it's not free will Baptist, but it's something like that. And they say, at any point, anybody could be saved, and we would never know it. Because God would never make you do any good works, including believe. And that, that it could be that your most atheist person you know is saved. And, right. you would have, and, and that none of us at any point have any idea who is saved and who isn't. Yeah, I think this is also a common doctrine in um, uh, Bible churches as well of a kind of dispensational bent. Um, especially... At least my experience, those affiliated with Dallas Theological Seminary, um, not that DTS teaches this per se, but there's a correlation between those churches and that seminary. 
And maybe you guys have heard the title a carnal Christian, that it, there is a category of Christian who never has good works, yet is a Christian, because works don't save you. Um, and very often, not very often, the only passage I've ever heard cited for that is 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 15, where Paul's talking about, you know, you will be saved, but it will be as if through fire, because all your works are burned up. Um, and that passage is not about an individual's um, like soul necessarily, but rather their ministry, because it's in a context of like, there's quibbles over ministry and good works, and I follow Paul, I follow Paul, that whole conversation in First Corinthians. Um, but anyways, yes, there, there are uh, brothers and sisters who do think that there are people like these like secret Christians out there that never actually in any way behave like a Christian. And I do think that's false. Um, I don't think that's borne out in Scripture. Um, certainly not borne out in the confession. Um, so anyways. Um, okay, let's do paragraph three and four. Um, okay, so remember, paragraph one says what good works are. Paragraph two, why they're important. Paragraphs three and four, which is why I want to do them together. Uh, maybe just have this in the back of your mind as we read. These deal with our ability to do good works and the extent to which we can expect to keep God's commands. So the natural question is you hear, okay, good works are necessary. And then you're like, well, geez, that's concerning. Um, the very next couple of paragraphs deal with your ability to actually do them, okay? So this is paragraph three. <clears throat> we'll just do the whole thing through. So um, you just follow along in your handout. Believers get the ability to do good works entirely from the spirit of Christ. That's mystery one. In addition to the other particular effects of God's grace already received, believers must be directed by the Holy Spirit in order to will and to do what pleases God. However, they are not therefore to grow spiritually lazy, waiting for some special guidance from the Spirit before doing anything commanded by God. Rather, they should diligently attempt to identify what good works God has commanded in his word and then try their best to do all of them, praying earnestly and daily for the empowering and enabling of the Holy Spirit who lives in them. And then paragraph four. Those believers who do the best that can be done in obeying God in this life can never do more or even as much as he requires. Indeed, they fall short of much which they are bound to do. So, again, the importance and the necessity of good works is immediately followed by the biblical teaching that it is the Spirit of Christ that gives us the ability to carry them out. This is crucial for your own Sanity, frankly. It is the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you that even gives you and affords you the grace to carry out these good works. Apart from Christ, we cannot bear good fruit. So not only apart from Christ can we know good, we can't, if, if we're reliant on him to even know good, surely we're reliant on him to do it. We all know this, though. Uh, John 15, four to five says this. This is one of the passages they cite. 
Remain in me, this is Christ talking to his disciples, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Our Lord is saying you cannot bear fruit unless you remain in the vine. You can't. You cannot bear fruit unless you remain in the vine. And crucially, lest the vine remain in you. Notice what else we learn from paragraph three. That, quote, believers must be directed by the Holy Spirit in order to will and to do what pleases God. However, they are not therefore to grow lazy, waiting for some special guidance from the Spirit before doing anything commanded by God. So here, I think, is a paradox of sorts. Um, We're utterly reliant on the Spirit of Christ to bear fruit. So truth one, utterly reliant on the Spirit of Christ to bear fruit. Yet, we will not bear fruit unless we stir up God's grace and quote, did you notice uh, the word, attain eternal life. To use the language that Paul uses, this is Acts 27, verses 6 and 7. Paul says, attain eternal life. Here's what's attested to by Scripture. It is our God's working and our working. Uh, consider this from 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, this is a kind of like um, splicing together of chapter 1 in Second Peter. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. For this very reason, the apostle tells uh, us to make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. His basic point is um, that although God is working in us, we are to be, and I'm going to quote from Peter again, diligent to make our calling and election sure. Okay, so again, though God is working in us, we are to be, quote, diligent to make our calling and election sure for, and again, this is Peter's words again, If you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, utterly reliant on God, yet we're commanded to do it. Um, Years ago, I remember John Piper talking about this kind of mystery of sanctification and he was giving a broad example of a young man Um, struggling with appropriate ways to use a computer, okay? And the young man in this hypothetical is on the internet and wanders into uh, an area that he should not and prays for God to help him and clicks the X button and like runs outside. Well, who did that? And the answer is both. And that's, that's not only what stirring up God's grace for good works looks like and feels like, that's what is attested to by Scripture. 
how many of you, in hindsight, looking back on a good work you've done, would ever say, I did that? Knowing that that's kind of true. You did do that. But you'd be a fool to think that you did it alone. Um, I was just reading to the boys this afternoon in The Horse and His Boy, and it's when Aslan is explaining to Shasta all the sufferings in Shasta's life. And one example, uh, the two horses, uh, Bree and Huynh, are getting caught up by this like, invading army and they need to go faster lest they die. And this lion comes up behind them and they don't know who it is and just shreds the horses with his claws down their back. And they like take off for fear of their life to escape. Obviously not knowing at the time that it was Aslan himself ripping them to shreds that they might actually be saved. So who escaped that very present danger that Bree and Huynh uh, were being tailed by? Well, I guess it was Bree and Huynh, but had it not been for Aslan on their tail, they never would. That's what the confession's getting at here. We are utterly reliant on God, yet we must, in this case, run. Let's talk about um, the limits of our good works. Just in case we need another reminder, paragraph four reminds us that our works in no way justify us. We cannot satisfy the demands of the covenant of works. Remember way back when we talked about this, the covenant made with Adam to obey God perfectly or else he would die. We cannot keep the covenant of works. You cannot. No, our only hope is in God's grace for our justification, but grace that will inevitably bear fruit in our lives and that enables our good working. Okay, let's go to paragraph five. Mm, Let's see here. Paragraph five, just for the sake of time, let me just summarize things here. Um, they're, they're at, they go to lengths and are at pains to show why our good works cannot justify, um, nor can they merit any forgiveness of sins. Uh, and there are several reasons why this is the case, but I'll just give you a very obvious reason why our good works cannot merit forgiveness of sins. Because if you were paying attention, who enables those good works? God. So how can something that God gives to us then be turned around and given to him as payment? That's a really bad deal for him. (laughs) That makes no sense. Um, So that's just an obvious reason. There's there's many more they talk about. That's one of the reasons why works cannot merit forgiveness. Um, However, again, they are still necessary. Um, And also, I think, I do think it's a helpful point. I think one of the reasons we struggle maybe to have a full-orbed vision for good works is, again, because there's a tendency, especially in our theological tradition, to think just so laser-focused on conversion, which is, of course, good. But there's more to life than conversion. I mean, how many people have been converted, say, as an adult, and after a month, they're kind of like, well, now what? And if all they're ever given is, like, an altar call... And they've already accepted the altar call. Well, what do they do? Well, just one thought. 
one example where good works are important outside of conversion is in the dominion mandate. When in the Lord's prayer, we're instructed to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how exactly do we think that's going to happen? It's through our good works. It's primarily through us acting as God's regents on earth that his will is carried out here. Okay, uh, six, paragraph six and seven. We'll just do six. Uh, actually, I'm gonna skip to the end because I think that one may be, be of more uh, interest, not that I'm here to entertain you, but just for the sake of time. Um, this paragraph is on, well, what are we to make of like pagans and good works? You always hear like, well, like atheists build hospitals. Yeah, they do, and I'm glad. Uh, I wish Christians would do it more, but I'm glad that somebody does. Uh, But let's read paragraph seven. Works done by people who have not been spiritually reborn may be the same as those commanded by God and may be of good use to them and to others. However, since they do not proceed from a heart purified by faith, are not done in the right way. That is, in response to God's word and are not done for the right purpose, the glory of God. They are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a person fit to receive grace from God. Nevertheless, it is more sinful and displeasing to God not to do such works than to do them. Um, There's some old wisdom that uh, I hear from my grandfather from time to time. He would say, well, a blind hog finds an acorn every now and then. And the blind hog in the example is the pagan, and the acorn is good works. Okay, pagans do good works. We need to be comfortable saying that. They do good things. They can, at least, do good things. However, as the Westminster divines say, they are sinful and they cannot please God because they do not proceed from a purified heart. Um. I had a whole bit here on justification. Let me see. I think this is a really helpful passage that they cite in 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 30 to 31, that makes this point. This is uh, from 2 Kings chapter 10. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Okay, so if you're paying attention, what you should have picked up on is that Jehu, according to God, had, quote, done well. God says that. God is looking at his works and says, okay, you've done well here. Yet, he was an utter idol worshiper. He refused to amend his life and still worship in the idols that he had inherited from Jeroboam. Yet, God says he had done well. This is how we ought to think of non-Christians and their good works. Um, I remember going through a phase in college where... um, like when I was first introduced to the doctrines of grace and just got total depravity 
and you get your teeth into total depravity and nothing else, it's like danger town. Um, and I used to like, legitimately think that it was only Christians who could do good works. And um, I guess in some sense, maybe that's like kind of true, but not really. And again, the hospital building thing, you know, I remember thinking like, oh, that's wicked. Those are wicked hospitals because <laughs> these pagans made them. That's not true. Um, in some sense, it kind of is, but we should look at that with God's eyes and evaluate it and say, okay, you've done well, but don't you dare think that you've done something that you ha- haven't, namely justified yourself before a holy and righteous God who alone can justify you by his grace. Um, we ought to have Paul's attitude in Philippians, like wherever Christ is preached, whether from pretense or greed or envy, I'm happy that Christ is preached. He's under no illusion that these people are not in good faith preaching him. Nevertheless, he can identify the good work for what it is. Um, So we should rejoice at the good works of pagans, but also recognize that they do not proceed from a purified heart. Um, We can look, for example, at the sacrifices of Cain and Abel, another example that they cite. On the outside, they look very similar. But Cain is judged for his because the sacrifice did not proceed from faith, whereas Abel's did. Ultimately, unbelievers and their works are for their own gain and glory. They have to be. Our Lord says, for those people, they already have enjoyed their reward. In Matthew 6. I'll stop there. For sh- I would say, it's even for Christians, like we also shouldn't kind of be bamboozled ourselves to say, well, if something is done by a Christian, it's all of a sudden like through and through good because, again, we have inherited a corrupt nature that is, by God's grace, being killed over the course of our life, but still intermingles in everything that we do along with Christ dwelling in us. So again, there's this indwelling sin problem that we have, and it won't be until glory, which we can look on a work and say, that is good through and through. So yeah, you're right. And I was just wanting to emphasize, this is true of Christians as well. So a Christian building a hospital, still a little sketchy too, probably like, you know, you put your name on it, like, uh, why'd you do that? You know, maybe you have your reward. I say you can't put your name on it, but I don't know, maybe not. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if I can handle it. Maybe you can Uh, Okay, well, I'll stop there because we've got uh, worship to begin in about 12 minutes. Um, If you're curious, I I do have some notes as well on um, how do you examine yourself and determine whether or not you are growing in grace? And there's some really helpful questions that we should all ask ourselves, so signs of growth. Um, And then equally as helpful, there are questions that you can ask yourself of signs of not growing which should be nerve-wracking to you. It should be. Whereas signs of growth ought to be actually encouraging. Okay, and we'll get to that. Maybe, maybe that'll feed nicely into assurance the next chapter or two in the confession. Um, okay, why don't we stand and then we'll, we'll pray and get ready for worship. <clears throat> our Lord and our God, we thank you for your kindness to us. Um, we ask, Lord, that you would do what only you can do, that you would... Give us clear eyes to see and recognize what is good. Help us, Lord, 
um, to be um, innocent as doves and wise as serpents, to not be tricked by our age um, into thinking that um, just because someone is zealous or uses words like righteous or justice, that what they are doing um, are good works. We need your help, Lord, to identify these things. We also pray, Lord, that you would enable us to will and to do what is pleasing to you. And perhaps um, the most immediate opportunity we have to do that is in the way we participate in worship even now. So would you prepare our hearts? Would you help us to worship you um, in spirit and truth now? And be with us in the name of our Lord Christ's name. Amen.